Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican Communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. For some reason, Sunday rolled around. I said, I don't know about what I believe about anything, but I just want to take communion. The Anglican instruments of communion, whatever binds us together, is always going to be more fragile than mm. you might think of like a Roman Catholic counterpart. It's always going to take hard work, and it's going to take mutual deference and humility, and it's going to take patience. The Living Church serving the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. Did you know that David Bentley Hart, that peppery, unyielding Eastern Orthodox theologian, has two brothers? One is a Church of England priest. Another is an American Anglo-Catholic priest. I, for one, would love to be at that Thanksgiving dinner. I have heard it said that families are some of God's most radical ecumenical experiments. I tend to believe it. Today, we have two brothers situated in denominations that have historically been in tension, even opposition. Now, before I introduce the brothers, a few notes for this episode, especially for those of you who aren't in the Anglican family or aren't familiar with what's going on at our Thanksgiving table. A bit complex right now. Here's a rundown. First of all, sometimes in the interview, we'll use shortcuts for the names of these denominations. Tech means the Episcopal Church. ACNA, or the ACNA, is the Anglican Church in North America. Now, the ACNA originated in the early 2000s as a theologically conservative movement within Anglicanism to define itself as separate from the Episcopal Church. And in 2019, they released their own prayer book, separate from the 1979 prayer book used generally by the Episcopal Church. Now, by conservative, what we mean in this episode is a traditional view of Christian scripture and ethics, particularly in regard to marriage and human sexuality, which the ACNA saw the Episcopal Church as moving away from. Now, I know conservative can mean a lot of other things, so just wanted to clarify there. And there were other issues at stake for the ACNA, but human sexuality and marriage was a big one. I wanted to give you the lay of the land, but also encourage you that even if you're not Anglican, this is not all shop talk today. If you're Methodist, Presbyterian, name a type of Christian, this tension between traditional or conservative and progressive Christianity will likely be familiar to you in this moment. One more note, the Anglican Communion is a Christian body originating in the Church of England, roots back to the Protestant Reformation with a leader known as the first among equals, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who is now the Archbishop Justin Welby. Now, the Church of England, if you haven't heard, recently approved blessings for people in same-sex unions. Many Anglicans celebrated this. Many, many Anglicans were chagrined. And there's a spectrum here, obviously, of how people felt about this. And of those who were not happy about it, many of their leaders recently gathered together in Kigali, Rwanda, and officially rejected the leadership of the Archbishop of Canterbury. This is huge. 
The vast majority have been officially part of the Anglican Communion, but some, including the Archbishop of the ACNA, have not historically ever been in communion with or under the authority of the Archbishop of Canterbury. So here's the scenario. An Episcopal church, which is mostly progressive, and a Global North Archbishop of Canterbury, who has celebrated what could be called a progressive theological pastoral move. Got that? And then we have a theologically conservative ACNA in the Global North, which originated in a separation from the Episcopal Church, but which is theologically in alignment with tens of millions of Anglicans, mostly from the Global South. And they form a group which has together just rejected the authority of the Archbishop of Canterbury. Whew. All right. I tried to go fast on this. I hope this is helpful. It's a long and complex history and in some ways has been a long time coming, this, this conflict. But most of us have not lived through the whole history. We just start where we are. We go to the parish we happen to be at and figure out our way from there. So what do we make of the church we're given? How do we navigate in the broken pieces, especially as people who are called to leadership? Today, we sit down with our two brothers, both priests, one in the Episcopal Church, one in the Anglican Church in North America. They were kind enough to come on the podcast and to share about their journeys, their decisions, their discernment into the priesthood, and also to field my questions, not always softballs, about Christian unity, the episcopacy, prayer books, communion with Canterbury, and how it affects their ministries. What does Christian wisdom entail in divided times? A question many of us are asking right now. Let's start at the dinner table and see what happens. My guests are the Reverend Jonathan and the Reverend David Beadle. John is rector of All Saints Conroe, Texas, in the Western Gulf Coast Diocese of the Anglican Church in North America. And David is curate at St. Matthew's Episcopal Cathedral in Dallas, Texas. I'll let them take it from here. I hope you enjoy the conversation. John, David, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Happy Thanks to be for here. Us. Yeah, definitely. It's an honor. So, I mean, how many priests can you fit at a Thanksgiving table? So you, <laughs> we've got an Episcopal church priest. We've got an ACNA priest there at Thanksgiving. Is this like being in the 18th century and having a red coat loyalist and a revolutionary renegade coming back home to share the turkey? Do you guys have to keep away from muskets? When you're together, what, <laughs> like, what's, well, what's that like? Well, well I know there, there's a question about unity coming up later in the podcast. So I'll leave the question about who's the real revolutionary to the side for now. <laughs> but I will, I'm just teasing. No, but in, in all seriousness, there is, I think David will agree with me. There is a Thanksgiving table now, and there's a Thanksgiving table seven years ago, and those are very totally. different tables. Mm. Totally. And so I'll just say right off the top, you know, my I really respect my brother. I think he's super smart, smarter than me, has, you know, a deep desire for people to hear the gospel and, and be transformed by the hearing of the gospel to share in the Eucharist, you know, and become the body of Christ, share in, the, in that inheritance of the Anglican patrimony, all that good stuff. So... Most of what we talk about today is like things we love, things we enjoy. And because a lot of the battles that people typically fight on Facebook, like a lot of those conversations have come and gone and we sort of settled on some things. And I don't know if David agrees with that, but I feel, I feel as though my brother is more my, my ministry partner now than I would say probably six or seven years ago. I don't, I don't know if David feels the same way, but that's the way I feel. Yeah, no. Yeah, I totally feel the same way. And and uh, I would say at Thanksgiving, John and I almost immediately grab muskets of some sort, but they're not, you know, necessarily the muskets of ACNA versus the Episcopal Church. But we are, you know, we, we love to talk about theology and the Bible and the Lord and what's going on in our churches. And so we get into the weeds in other ways immediately. And I always look forward to family gatherings for that reason, but we aren't, yeah, we're not typically hashing out the same arguments that we used to have. But, you know, the funny thing about my brother and I is like, uh, there's five brothers total. They're all like non-denominational yeah. evangelical charismatic types who are amazing and they have their own, they're on their own journeys. You know? Yeah. That was another question I had too, is how you both grew up. Yeah. That's what, 
that's what we were raised in. My dad came from the Roman Catholic Church. My mom oh. came from the Presbyterian Church, I guess, during the Jesus movement, right, at, at college, had these sort of conversion experiences in college and basically have been charismatic, you know, non-denominational, evangelical ever since. And so we were raised in that. Very devout parents took Bible reading very seriously. We talked about Jesus all the time. You know, John and I would do the, you know, would would own the Bible drills in children's church. And well, that we only were... because I wasn't in your children's church. Yeah, well, obviously, David, <laughs> you didn't have good competition. <laughs> that's, that's fair. That's fair. But we no, we grew up in that, and our faith as a family was always the center of our lives. Thanks be to God. And yeah, so beautiful. That's what yeah, that's what we were raised in. So can you give us a sense of your ministry paths? John, I want to start with you. What was your path? Did you strike out to become a priest before David did? Yes, I did become a priest before my brother did. I was a deacon before he was. I entered seminary before he did. But uh, both of us simultaneously found ourselves in sort of forced out or, or struggling with faith after some pretty traumatic stuff that happened in the non-denom world. Mm. The short version is my wife and I, when we first got married just over eight years ago, we were both associate pastors at a non-denom church plant. And we, we, we essentially had to leave very abruptly while my wife was almost seven months pregnant. And then she had a seizure, not even a few days after we left that church. And we were like churchless. Our primary income was gone. She had a seizure unexpectedly, but we, whenever they did the test on that, they found out that she had high blood pressure and she had eclampsia. So oh. that was directly related to, that was like the result of the pressure and this and the stress around the job at the time. So to, to say that like we were suddenly open to new religious categories is an understatement. I mean, we were open to not even believing in God. Mm. We were opening to not even being Christian. So we were already sort of in a ex-evangelical sort of deconstruction phase anyway. And when that happened and my son was born, the combination of the, the intense nearness of God and also the forsakenness of God, we felt both at the same time. Hmm. For some reason, though, I had been reading in a lot of N.T. Wright, okay? the, the gateway drug for all <laughs> right. evangelicals, right? right, into the Anglican world. And so I knew that Anglicans had communion every Sunday some reason, Sunday rolled around. And I said, I don't know about what I believe about anything, but I just want to take communion. Hmm. I just felt this deep division in my own soul and looking over what felt like a precipice. And I'm looking into it and I'm like, why do I want to take communion right now? <laughs> and I couldn't tell you why, but I just wanted to. And this is the point I want to make about the division between tech and ACNA though. I didn't realize we were not tech or that there was any real difference for a little while there. Right. Because we just needed healing. Yeah. And this was the church that like scooped us up and rescued us and loved our, loved on us and made, you know, let us heal. Yeah. So I still had my, my intellectual hangups about certain doctrines in the Anglican church. I made a vow for a year to obey my priest even if I didn't want to do something he asked me to do. And all of a sudden, next thing you know, we're members, we're confirmed, and then we're going to baptize our kid. I mean, it's just like all these things. Boom, boom, boom. And they just started lining up. Hmm. And then I was about to graduate and go to law school, and I wanted to go to law school. And my bishop pulled me aside one day, and he said, I've been praying and hoping that you would go to seminary. Man, what a nosy was, bishop. I know. I was like, <laughs> hey, come on, man. And I remember the Lord just telling me, you know, that, that passage in John asking you'll, you'll find, seeking, you'll find, knocking the door will be open to you. It was just like a realization that all of my ministry up until that moment would find its fulfillment in the stewarding of the sacraments. So I realized in that moment, like I was called to be a priest. And when I called it that afternoon, like that afternoon, I called my bishop and I said, I'm in. And he just was like, finally. And he just said, welcome. And when he said, welcome, I felt like, hot oil got poured down from my head to my feet. I mean, you know, so I'm a, I, at, at my heart, I'm still You're very much still a little bit of charismatic, you know? John. Yeah. I was like that hot oil rolling down the beard of Aaron. Yeah. Upon I know, the, I know. On the head I of his know, I, know, I was like, I he, I there's, it's like, there's some charismatic left in that guy. Oh, yeah. Totally. totally. <laughs> still, yeah. We still got that Pentecostal fire, you know, 
Thank you, John. Okay, David, what is the the shape of your story? What John didn't mention, I'm surprised, is that we both really cut our teeth in ministry in a college ministry that he ah. started. Oh. And it was it was nothing short of a revival. I mean, it was an unbelievable experience. We were working full time for free, but we were it was open air preaching, Bible studies, evangelism, nights of worship. We had home groups throughout the city. We had several hundred students. It was like wow. Un real there were no adults right we were just total (laughs) total wild west total wild west just like the living church podcast (laughs) (laughs) so we so we did that and and through connections a, a pastor out in east texas reached out to my pastor at the time and said hey i've heard about this college ministry do you think any of those young people would want to come out here and be our youth minister Two weeks later, I packed up my 96 Accord with everything I own, and I moved into a ranch house of a family at the church in East Texas and lived in their attic, served at this tiny, very charismatic church on the outskirts of Tyler, Texas, in East Texas. Wow. I was there in a totally different world for two years, and it was during that time that I started reading theology. Now, it may sound surprising to some people that I had already been in ministry for three years and um, hadn't really read theology or had any training. But in that world, that's very normal. In fact, it wasn't until I became an Episcopalian that uh, the pastor had an MDiv, you know, or any formal theological education. I was very intellectually insecure, extremely intellectually insecure. I was a terrible student in high school. I had skipped university, and I began ordering N.T. Wright books, and it's extremely difficult, but it becomes, you know, a joy, and 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 just like it, it represents like a profound shift in my life. Hmm. It became a point of tension, though, because I'm reading, and you know, guys, I'm reading N.T. Wright. I'm not reading like, you know what I mean? I'm not reading anybody radical, and I'm reading a, a pretty straightforward, well-respected theologian by everybody, and. Uh, it becomes a point of tension with you know, some of the things I've been raised on, especially with the sort of inherent nationalism and the and the Zionism that runs through a lot of the charismatic movement and was certainly present at this church in a very strong way. And on top of that, there were some charismatic expressions that were no longer resonating with me. And mm-hmm. um, so I kind of entered like a, a bit of a deconstruction phase. And I was outside of a coffee shop one day, and I was reading a book by Miroslav Volf, and I had no idea what I was reading. And a priest, an Episcopal priest, walks up in a tweed jacket, smoking a pipe, and uh, and he walks up and says, why are you reading that? Like, that was his introduction. Why are you reading that? And I said, I don't know. I just, I want to. And he goes, huh, good book. And I was like, oh, you've read it. And he said, yeah, of course I've read it. It's Exclusion and Embrace by Miroslav Volk. And I think I said something about, I don't like religion. I just love Jesus or whatever. And he kind of shrugged it off and invited me to a crawfish bowl. And I'm from Louisiana. So I said, I will be there. And what my wife and I sort of found this Episcopal Church community to be healing, to be like an oasis in the desert. And I found in, in, in this man whose name is Father Matt Bolter. You can actually find him on the Living Churches. Uh, it was Matt Bolter. Yeah. I'm so glad was... that you buried the lead. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> and if, Matt, you know if you're Father listening Matt, right now, I should have known. Yeah, if you know Father Matt, you're not surprised. He was the person who I could like grab a coffee with or a beer with. And I could talk through these things that I was reading and learning. And he was never shocked. And so... Long story short, I met with him frequently. He had, you know, no desire to pull me away from my church. I was still serving at that charismatic non-denom church. But as tensions got a little too tense, the senior pastor told me that they could no longer afford a full-time youth minister. And I said, you know, I think I know where I'm supposed to go. Hmm. We went to Christ Episcopal Church in Tyler, Texas. I discerned there. Ended up going to Wycliffe College in Toronto and ended up here at the cathedral. So that's my story. Some of the similarities in your stories strike me, but the one that that strikes me the most is the 
being led into a place of healing and then becoming embedded in that particular parish, which is part of a particular tradition, and that being where you're nourished. And so that being also the place from which you're called and continue to discern where you belong in ministry. This is this is one of the things that helped David and I move beyond some of the initial debates we were having was when we just admitted to each other one day that we were primarily where we were first and foremost because that because of what you just said. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it it wasn't like we both said, okay, here are the options. Which right. one do we choose? So that that I think needs to be said, right? Mm-hmm. That that primarily begins there. So yeah. I just wanted to put that out there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that you said that because I do think that that's important now that we have a really good picture of your contexts. Very briefly, how do you see, if you do see, the larger structure of the church affecting your ministry today? How do, for example, the ministry of the episcopacy or the wider Anglican communion, how do they affect what you do? Do you see them affecting what you do on a day-to-day basis? Yes, I I do. And I'll say it this way. I think sort of in contrast to the ecclesial context that we grew up in. So like, for example, you know, we attended churches growing up that were essentially started by the pastor, right? Every church you go to was started like, you know, in the 80s by like some young pastor who's still the pastor. And whenever they leave, the church then collapses. Like that, whenever that's your entire church trajectory, then when I find myself speaking with an Episcopal priest, Father Matt, I remember Father Matt said, because uh, I was I was talking about this, and he said, you know, Christ Church, which was the church in Tyler, he said, Christ Church was here a century before I was. Hmm. And it's going to be here long after I leave. And that's largely due to the structures that are in place that prevent it from being entirely, you know, a personality cult or something like that. So that's a big thing. I think the structure of the liturgy, almost maybe everyone who comes from the evangelical context to an Anglican context will talk about the liturgy and how we don't, you know, it's it's nice to not have to make up worship every week. And then I think the wider communion, it places me square within the tradition. And that's with the saints that have gone before us and the work of the Spirit in the church for centuries and millennia. And so that's a tradition that I don't feel the responsibility to conjure up. And I don't feel the pressure to, in a sense, get it all right on my own. But rather, I'm entrusted with the tradition, and it's an honor to be entrusted with it. Yeah. How about you, John? The best way to answer that in our context would be, I suppose, our bishop is my, he's our spiritual father. He's my spiritual father. We, we're not functionally congregationalists. So we mm-hmm. do function like we make references to the bishop. He comes in, does confirmations. You know, he was the first person in our diocese to believe in me, to be a church planner. Episcopal polity is a big part of who we are. The, the two main things for me are everything that we do in whether it be prayer or worship is certainly prayer book centric as far as the structure of what we do, as far as like the debates about high and low and, and what that really means to us, it's just like, well, whatever you're doing, just make sure it's just correct. We care about the tradition and we love that it's such a wide hallway. But practically speaking though, Amber, I mean, our, our people don't care about the, what's necessarily, they don't know about what's going on in the province. You know, we haven't been here a hundred years. We've been here for not even a year. So, mm-hmm. so our people, when people ask questions about Anglicanism, it's like, they're just like, Hey, you're wearing like, what kind of, why are the robes the way they are? And like, right. why, you know, why prayer book worship? So it feels like it's just us and our bishop and our diocese, our diocesan family. And it feels like that's kind of comfortably where our people are and what they're learning about. And then the stuff at the provincial and the global level are things that like we as clergy are really thinking through and thinking about all the time. Because we know that we have to think about that when it comes to the future mm-hmm. of our movements. Yes, we care. Yes, it matters. Obviously, our people feel it. They know they have a bishop, and, th- and that's important to us, that he is, he is seen in that, that capacity. But as far as are they on Twitter all day long, on weird Anglican Twitter? No. 
Can I can I'm I sure. ask you just very briefly yeah. side question? So when you say prayer book worship, is it two, 2019 prayer book? The 20 yeah, we have a 2019 prayer book. Okay, 2019 right. prayer book. Is this required for ACNA parishes to use the have they shifted to a requirement to this instead of the 1979 or 1928 or 1662 prayer book right. usage? I mean, our foundational documents say that the 1662 is, it's the only one mentioned, right, as the standard for worship. Mm -hmm. So when they released the 2019, the province said, look, we don't want to make this a forced march. We just encourage people to start using it. But lately, you know, in our diocese, the 79 is not allowed. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. I'm not really saying this one's better than the other. Maybe the yeah, 2019 yeah, yeah. is not the best one, you know, and maybe, in a, you know, you can probably make an argument right now for why it's not. I'd probably agree with you. I will not. I will uh, not make that. I haven't had well, my second cup of coffee, so I, no, no, no. I'm not ready for that no, but, argument. And I yeah. didn't hear you saying anything about superiority or inferiority of prayer books at all, yeah. but I... I was because when you know, if you say prayer book worship or liturgy, there is there is always a question of what prayer book, what liturgy, because they do shape a congregation like the, you know, the fact that you both landed in particular parishes at a particular time under a particular kind of liturgy, particular kinds of ministry shaped your journey of healing and vocation. And so they, you know, so it the I would say that it does matter the that the specific the specifics do matter the details do matter. There's an Anglican answer I give to people about why they should use 2019. Bring it in our province and dice. I just say mm -hmm. well they because people will say well it's not the best one or the 1662 does this better over here and the 79 does this better over here and the 1928 right or 28 does this better here. I just say to them I don't care. The issue is not which one is better. The issue is, which is the one we've been given? Mm -hmm. We've been given the 2019. That's us. Mm -hmm. That's the prayer book that our bishops and there's committees and the college has said, this is ours. This is going to shape our worship. So let's use it. This is the one that's in the back of the pew. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Hey there, podcast listener. If you've listened to the podcast for a while, you probably know that The Living Church is not just a podcast. Oh no, my friend. TLC is a publishing ministry with a unique magazine, independent church news reporting, a stellar theology blog, resources for parish ministry, many of them free. I could go on. Stop me now. Stop me now. We're rooted in the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion, but we have a big heart for the unity of all God's people. You know that I love that you're here, but I don't want you to just stay in the podcast space and miss out on other ways our ministry might serve you. You can go to livingchurch.org and see what all TLC offers. How can we serve you today? One way we might serve you is coming up in September. We're hosting an event with an amazing community of friends at All Souls Episcopal Church in Oklahoma City, a conference called The Human Pilgrimage. What does it mean to be human? How do we live fully as creatures loved, limited, and liberated by God? Join the Living Church September 26th to 28th in Oklahoma City and be refreshed by three days of world-class keynotes, friendship, and meditation on who we are as creatures in Christ. Right now, you also get 15% off all tickets with the promo code EARLYBIRD. Go to livingchurch.org forward slash events for more information and to buy your tickets. And I hope to see you there. Okay, so most Anglican provinces have understood that union with the Sea of Canterbury, you know I was going to go here, is an, is an essential characteristic of being Anglican, and that it's honest about the history of how these churches came to be. It doesn't separate itself from, you know, this history of mess and sin and misappropriation and, and you know, even some heresies, etc., so how do you square that now? You're, you're a little further along in your journey. And so you have a little more space to weigh those things intellectually as well as in the heart. How do you square this really strong conviction by many Anglicans with your decision to serve and to be continuing to serve in the ACNA? Look, every Anglican should have a sentiment, should attach some sentimental feeling and warm feeling around Canterbury because 
I mean, who doesn't love Thomas Cranmer? What what Anglican priest doesn't truly appreciate or value Keeble or Cranmer or Newman or you know the entirety of what comes is coming out of England and given to us by way of an inheritance? I certainly appreciate and value all of that. But Canterbury is not Rome. Anglicanism Anglicans are not Roman Catholics. We don't look at Canterbury in the same way that Catholics might look at the seat of St. Peter. So the question to me is not like, why are we not in communion with Canterbury? The question is, why is Canterbury, which at this point theologically is sort of representing a minority of the global communion, not in line with the rest of the global like communion? Why is it not in line? And frankly, I think it's more Catholic to be in alignment with the majority than with Canterbury. There's been a huge shift to Africa, Mm -hmm. which I think is a good thing. You know, and so what I just say is, look, the major- we're in, we are in communion with the majority of Anglicans across the world, in particular the global church. But I do hear the, the responses to that, like, and take it seriously about division and splintering and, and schism. But I don't, I don't think ACNA is a splinter group. I think that diminishes who we're in alignment with. I've told this to my brother before, so I'll, now it's only fitting I share it with your podcast listeners, okay? So imagine for a second that the Episcopal Church, they came out, the college bishops released a statement saying, we as a denomination are no longer just Christian. We are also Buddhist or Muslim or whatever. And we are going to now align ourselves as a dual practicing faith. And this is what it means to be Episcopalian. All right. Would you then, and this is a question I pose to all conservatives in that movement, right? Would you then consider it leaving? Would you say you would leave? And and most conservatives in tech would say, yeah, of course I would leave because it would be a different religion altogether. And so then my pushback and my response to that is simply to say, well, for many of us, when we saw things were happening in the 70s, things were happening with Gene Robinson, it became like that for many clergy. It became like, you're asking us to do interfaith dialogue in our own denomination. We're not going to do that. Hmm. We want to be about the gospel. And so, you know, with with respect, like changing the meaning of marriage, changing the meaning of the bishop and who can serve as a bishop feels like that's a different religion. Look, we're not perfect. The ACNA had its own problems for sure, largely be, you know, because of how we reform that kind of creates its own trajectory. But I think the two direct things I want to say really are, you know, those two things, the, the, the thought experiment on the one hand and about division. And then and on the other hand, sort of the idea of what Canterbury even is. Well, it's part of what's interesting about what you're describing, John, the shape of your argument is in some ways a very classically Protestant shape. I took Mm. a a pilgrimage to Rome a couple of years ago with the Living Church. We had to read a bunch of stuff and we took some classes while we were there. And some of the materials that we read were were people who were in the, the very nascent stages of the Church of England becoming a thing mm. and making, trying to work out and make arguments for why we are not a schismatic group. So saying, well, here's, here's how we are understanding ourselves. So, th- so there's a Protestant side to it, which is a classically mm-hmm. Protestant side, which is to say, mm we are defining who is quote unquote staying and quote unquote leaving by faithfulness to certain theological truths, not by who stops being under whose bishops, which I think, and I'm, you know, there are a lot more, a lot of other factors that go into that, but that sort of like, it looks like we're leaving, but we're really staying because we're staying faithful. Um, and where yeah. we're staying to, you know, Orthodox Christian teachings. But then there's also a, a Catholic desire mm. in mm. Anglicans to yeah. still under the understand themselves as Catholic and as Catholics. Yeah. And that that s- does have a tangible relationship to mm. yeah. bishops and, and, and apostolic succession, yeah. you know, Jesus touched the apostles who touched the people who touched the people who touched the people on and on and on. And so you have <laughs> Father Matt Bolter and, you know, a Christchurch Tyler, yeah. or whatever, whatever it may be. And so the Sea of Canterbury being a understanding itself as, 
I'm saying this with fear and trembling because I'm going to try to like sum up <laughs> some of these great texts that I read two years ago. But yeah, 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 yeah. like understanding themselves as a as a as a protesting movement within Catholicism, oh. which mm. is sort of waiting for reunion when we've sort of all been corrected of some of our faults that we can come back to the same table and all call ourselves Catholic Christians once again. So, yeah, yeah. you, it no, looks like, and, and David's like yeah. nodding and taking notes too. So you guys want to yeah. jump in and, and, and respond to that? Yeah. I think a lot of our, our conversations, John and I, whenever we, we first, like when we came to our respective churches, Again, just by kind of, yeah, decisions were made, but ultimately we both just found ourselves where we were. Mm-hmm. We have, we very shortly after learned about the ACNA and, and tech split. And all of a sudden we had to like fight for our teams. Mm. And so, you know, we, 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 uh, we got our arguments together and our rhetoric together. And what I realized <laughs> was, you know, like you were saying, the arguments tend tended to go along the lines of either on on the ACNA side, it's a matter, orthodoxy is a matter of doctrinal truth. And on the tech side, orthodoxy was a matter of unity in the church. And I think it's really interesting that you frame the question that way between a Protestant emphasis and a Catholic emphasis, because I think those two things can be nuanced to death absolutely depending on how far back you want to go in church history i think it's very easy to make a case for many of the of many centuries in in the church's history that orthodoxy was primarily understood as right belief then there are also eras of the church of church history where you can talk about how orthodoxy and right belief become entangled with remaining in communion with and of course remaining in communion with someone can only become an issue whenever people are removing themselves from communion with one another. Obviously, I'm, I'm Protestant, so I'm very sympathetic, okay? But at the same time, where we find ourselves now on this end of things, this, this you know, so, sort of this far gone, there are so many churches that there are so many denominations that it's, it's, at this point, it's almost become a parody of the church. And I think that the call for unity and the concern over unity comes in part for me from being where we are and coming from where we came from, where it's like, oh, now we're going to do denominationalism within Anglicanism. Now we're going to do that, right? This was like the, this was like the one place where you can go where that wasn't like a thing, I guess, you know? And, but anyways, I think earlier on in our, in our, in our, like, I guess what you called the Protestant versus the Catholic concern, I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm not as convinced that those categories really hold up on their own for either of us. I think John has a, has a concern for unity. And I think I have a concern for doctrinal uh, consistency and truth. So, you know, I, I think all of that gets, gets mixed together and, and then now we have to like parse it out again. And and I know I'm complexifying this because it has to be, right? It has yeah. to be complex. Yeah. It can't be just that simple. I also wanted to say something about the Archbishop of Canterbury. I love that John, John brought up that the Archbishop of Canterbury is not the Pope. I mean, that's precisely our right. challenge as right. Anglicans, exactly. right? And, yeah, exactly. And every, yeah, every, every like Anglican ecclesiologist is sort of, you know, at some point, like beating their head against the wall, because it would be nice. And yet, and what that means is that, you know, when you think of the Pope, it's not, it's not only that the Pope is a figure for unity. The Pope is also sort of understood to have a profound spiritual authority in the church given by God directly. And you might say, certainly, right? Now, for Anglicans, and I think this goes all the way back to Cranmer, and this is, for me, a very important distinction for us, is that Anglican polity, so bishops, priests, deacons, how we structure ourselves, and I think this can include how the Anglican communion has developed over the last, you know, 150, 160 years into a global communion. Our polity is a matter of 
practical necessity and efficiency. Now, some more Anglo-Catholic people might might disagree with me on this. I'm not really making an Anglo-Catholic versus low church point, but I do think this is historically true, is that for Anglicans, our polity is a matter of practical necessity and efficiency. We kept bishops because we thought that they were good, not because they were of the essence of the church, as Richard Hooker makes very clear. So for the Archbishop of Canterbury, it's not that he's of the essence of the church. The question is, does it work? Now, having said that, I'm going to say something else that's very important, too. It's the other half of this equation, which is that for Anglicans, it's not merely practical. It's that we believe that the Holy Spirit is guiding the church. We kept bishops not only because they were good, but because the Holy Spirit had given the church this polity, and it was working. So though it's not of the essence of the church, it is from God. And that's the classic Richard Hooker distinction there. And so I wonder, I think it's, it's important for us to wonder together whether or not the Archbishop of Canterbury has been given to us by God with all of its challenges, that office, if that office has been given to us as a mark of unity. And we have to discern if, if that is the case or if it isn't. And if it isn't, then what is? And I know that a lot of people have been doing a lot of great theological and ecclesiological work to determine, to try and figure out some marks of unity for the Anglican Church. And the difficulty now is that with divisions, not only between us and the ACNA, but across the Anglican Communion, there's a lot of tensions. It becomes more and more difficult to discern the will of God together. And so I think that the Archbishop of Canterbury is not obviously a symbol of unity, but probably is. <laughs> That's my summary. Well, I, yeah. Nice. Can John, I respond to that, Amber? Yes, please. Yeah. I was going to ask you to, definitely. <laughs> so Judas was an apostle, according to the book of Acts, right? And there's this really interesting passage where Peter says, before the Holy Spirit comes, let another take his place. In the King James translation, it says, let another take his bishopric. So there is this sense, I think, it, it's, you know, as, as Anglicans who sort of like come from this heritage that like, we definitely buy into the notion that these, this ecclesiology or these positions exist in, the super, in a supernatural arena. They have sort of platonic, you know, like forms somewhere. Because even the apostles said, you know what, this, this place, this apostolic like seat exists even though Judas has betrayed it, let another take his place. And so, you know, when it comes to the, the, the discussion around bishops, I often just tell people, you know, we don't submit to bishops because bishops make up for something that's lacking in the word of God, right? We submit to bishops because we believe the word of God points us back to the church, which we believe is Episcopal or like in just in the broadest sense. I don't mean the Episcopal church, you understand, okay? So God, give, he gives us this. And so, you know, when the, the Archbishop of Canterbury does something like around the blessing of same-sex unions or marriages and, and, and actually works to get consensus amongst the College of Bishops for this thing happening and then publicly coming out and saying, this is a net good for the church for us to support. Thinking back to even John 17, the high priestly prayer where Jesus prays for unity, I was thinking through this passage before we, we met today. You know, Jesus says, the world is going to hate you. So part of the precondition of unity is that you are going, are going against the grain of the world, at least the spirit of the age. When a church, you know, like an archbishop who up until this point, I mean, I still, even as ACNA, like have so much respect for and even affection for, especially his work in the Middle East and the way mm -hmm. that like guys like Andrew White, you know, who, who were working in Baghdad even after the troops were pulling out and trying to like, he has an amazing story, you know, and to see sort of what's happening in England right now is I think all Orthodox and conservative Anglicans across the world are grieving and are trying to figure out how to process what's happening. At the very least, you know, we can acknowledge that we understand that, yes, the seat of the bishop is a manifestation and an image or an icon of the unity of the church, and at the same time say, 
there are times where those who take that seat defile it, dismiss it, are in violation of the word of God, and are therefore at the minimum compromise and at maximum, like probably not even bishops anymore. Like we're just, just at least having that, like this feels like a very norm, normative 16th century like issue to kind of parse out and think through. I just want to add a, a quick note. I really don't think that what John was saying is that Archbishop Justin is like Judas. I don't think his point oh, was yeah, that yeah, like, yeah, yeah. No. I just want to <laughs> no. give you a chance to like clear the air and be like, okay, yeah. what I hear the point being is, is that the seat of the Archbishop exactly. is a, right. is a contingent it, one. There, I'm giving biblical reference to a bigger idea that goes beyond just Judas. Yeah. I'm talking about the idea of the apostolic and then the, the mm-hmm. bishop sort of outgrowth of the apostolic seats, mm-hmm. right? And that if if someone who sits in one of these seats makes a decision which offends or distresses many people who are under their authority, especially the ones that are under their authority now, those who are in the ACNA are, are not under the authority of the archbishop. And so Correct. there's a yeah. there's a there is a different dynamic there, but you're but what you're doing is you have relationships with people who are and you're observing this occur. And so it's it's not helping kind of your sense of trust or distress to see decisions being made or or things being expressed which are causing distress to millions of of Anglicans around mm-hmm. the world. And you guys seem like you're enjoying yourselves. I do want us to be able to maybe put in one more question that can wrap this conversation up. Please. Yeah, please we'll love yeah. it. Yeah, let's do okay, it. Okay, but but David, you but let me just say one more thing too related to that clarification. Of about Archbishop Justin as as a person as a leader specifically, versus this sort of idea of what a seat like that should be for and biblical precedents for understanding it, is that th- this phrase came to mind while you were talking, John. Is that hmm. maybe it's safe to say that the instruments of communion are made for man, and not hmm. man for the instruments of communion? Come on. And so, David, this connects to what you were sharing Mm. earlier, too, when you were kind of posing some questions in a very Sam Wells style, sort of like, I wonder if, I wonder whether, (laughs) you know, but if the instruments of communion are made for the good of, of us, even if we don't serve them, you know, I mean, so there's still some contingency there. We still have to answer the question, in what sense? Are they made for us? Mm. How do we receive them? Do we nurture and protect them? How much and how far? David, did you have one more? Did you have a one more response? Yes, I, I mean, I want to say to that to that question that the the Anglican instruments of communion or in, or whatever binds us together is always going to be more fragile than mm. you might think of like a Roman Catholic counterpart. It's always going to be more fragile. It's always going to take hard work, and it's going to take mutual deference and humility, and it's going to take patience. And I just want to say, as a response to what John was saying about, you know, essentially about bad bishops and what to think of them and what to do with them, Ephraim Radner was very influential for me here, as he was for so many others in his book, Pope Among the Fragments. The Anglican Communion, I believe— jumped the gun on same-sex marriage. It was too quick. And I don't, I'm not convinced at this moment that same-sex marriage is a matter of orthodoxy. And I know I know a lot of people disagree with me there. I'm not convinced it is. I think it's a matter of of discerning the scriptural witness. And Anglicans, because we don't have like a teaching magisterium, we have to discern that together, and it just takes time, and it takes relationships, and it takes conversations, and it takes, you know, living things out and seeing how they work. It takes like this whole network of discernment, and I think that if we're looking to solve Anglicanism from the top down, we're only going to keep getting ourselves in trouble. And so I just, for me, I guess I just want to like appeal <laughs> to hmm the Anglican church to just say, let's slow down, pray, talk, and wait. 
because I think when people have agendas, agend agendas need to get done at any means necessary, and they need to get done quickly. And that's why agendas are problematic for discernment. So I just I just wanted to say that, and maybe maybe that answers the question a little bit about instruments of unity. And that is that I know that they're real, and I know that they're fragile. <laughs> they're both, and that's the church that that we live in. Yeah. Amber, can I just say a little bit quick response to that would be, I do think it's harder for you guys than it is for me to be conservative in tech, honestly. So like, I want to recognize, and I wish more ACNA priests would recognize how hard that is and, and that people could be called to that, you know, mm. like could actually be called in that way. And so I think my brother legitimately is called in that way. My concern though, is that, uh, broadly speaking, with the the idea that we being ministers of the gospel, going out to preach the gospel, that being the primary work, is it easier or harder to do that when you have to also constantly be the conservative political voice amongst so many different fights? Like, at what point does that become too much? You can no longer do that. I, I don't know. I don't think I can answer that for anybody. That has to be somebody else's like answer, but. It is something that I've observed is that it's people who are typically orthodox or conservative or whatever, how you want to define that in tech, like they typically are also really good at navigating those waters. And, and so I respect that. I think it's hard. I think it's really difficult. Although I would say I've heard Jamie Smith also say that argue that sexuality is not a piece of orthodoxy. And, and to that, I just wholeheartedly disagree and respectfully disagree. Christian marriage being the standard and being the image of the icon of Christ and his church and therefore should be something that's at least adjacent to orthodoxy. So that would be my pushback on that. But I, again, recognizing like you guys, I, my hat's off to you. I salute you. This is, this is difficult. It's not easy. So you actually, John, just asked one of the questions that I, I was going to mm. ask David, and I thought, do we have time? Maybe I'll skip it. Let me just go ahead and, <laughs> and let me just go ahead and ask it, David, because I think you've thought about it. For somebody like you, with a with a more traditional understanding of of sexuality in the Bible, you know, with some nuance, as you pointed out, most people are going to say that your days are numbered in tech. <laughs> <laughs> just to put it frankly, is that true? What do you think about that? This question used to haunt me especially when I was first coming into the Episcopal Church. I, it kept me up at night. And as I've thought about this over the years, I've come to believe that the question actually kind of gives itself away. Because the question is, are your days numbered? But we know that in Scripture, like the numbering of days <laughs> is like it's a figure of God's providential ordering of mortal life. Can we order our own days? Can we number our days? Are we in charge of our future? And over and over again in scripture, every time that question is asked, the answer is no. And God seems pretty dead set on making that clear. And so honestly, like the question itself is really, can I predict the, my future and can I predict the future of the Episcopal Church? And of course, the answer is no, like my days are in God's hands. The church is God's church. The Episcopal church is God's church. And I take great, great comfort in that my life is in God's hands. And that includes all of this. So I'll, I'll say this, honestly, practically, if for some reason or another, I am unable to serve as a priest or even be in the Episcopal church in the future, I will have considered it God's doing. And I won't think it's time wasted for me. I will have thought, I think that it's that God works something in my life and in this church. Now, I, you know, practically, no, I don't, I actually don't think my days are numbered. I think there are a lot of things that are hopeful about the Episcopal Church that I see every day. I, I think I don't have a lot of faith in the in the Christian vision and culture that the Episcopal Church has built up over the last like six decades. And I think that a Christian vision that's built on a low view of scripture and a low view of orthodoxy and 
the you know redefinition of marriage, but also all kinds of sort of political alliances with American political ideology. And I don't think that that can last. And so, you know, I guess the question is practically, if that isn't a compelling vision for the church, then what's going to happen to the Episcopal Church? And so I know that there are a lot of people in the Episcopal Church who don't share that vision. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't, for providential reasons, I think it's all in God's hands. And for practical reasons, I have much reason to hope. One final question for you guys, and it's a thought experiment. In five years, peacefully, and by the agreement of most parties involved, there was a united family of Anglicans in the United States. Let's just, let's just say the United States. So the Episcopal Church, the ACNA, are in some form of unity in which almost everyone is happy about how this happened, and it happens peacefully. So this is the thought wow. experiment, right? Wow. I know. <laughs> Birds are singing. This is, this is a bold experiment. How would that state of things enrich your ministry and the life of God's people and, and maybe your own hearts? I would say John 17, Jesus's prayer is being answered. I would say this is the prayer that Jesus prayed is being answered in our day. And I would give thanks. So that's what I would say. And I would say, thank God that we don't have any of these more, more of these lawsuits mm. and that we, mm. people are able to worship with their ancestors, you know, in the same buildings they've been in for centuries and people are able to come together and take communion. And I think I would, I would, I would say that would be obviously a fulfillment of the go- of gospel ministry for sure. Yeah, John. But what prayer book would we use? Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Fifteen forty six. No. <laughs> the fifteen. The black rubric. We're not. <laughs> David, how about you? Yeah. Yeah, I think that basically. Well, it's, I mean, there are so many reasons that it would be better. Currently, we are witnessing in disunity, which is a profound scandal to the gospel. I think all Christians should agree, mm-hmm. even if, even for, even for people who believe that it's not as bad as other options, it is a scandal to the gospel that we're not together. All of the scandal of our disillusion is resolved. On top of that, you have reconciliation which is a witness to Christ and to his kingdom. And then finally, what good would it be for us? And though I have my disagreements, obviously, with the ACNA, I think that the ACNA is full of godly ministers who are proclaiming Christ crucified, who are preaching the gospel, who are forming Christians to love the Lord and to love their neighbors. I think it is full of those people Mm -hmm. and to be united with them in communion with one another would be a profound gift for me, for the Episcopal church. It would be a gift for the United States and for the great commission. And so, yeah, the ACNA is full of, faithful Christians who are very gifted. And I think we would be all the better for being together. And you know where this starts, David, is for you both and all of your colleagues to come to Living Church conferences. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Sign me up. We're coming. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Registration for our New York City preaching conference coming soon. That sounds delightful, actually. Yeah. Oh, it will be. We can give you a steep discount, John. You just let okay, me know. Thanks. Look at that reconciliation, wow. man. There we go. Mm, I feel that it. That is good. Mm. Woo! Woo! <laughs> I, I've been speaking today with the Reverend John and the Reverend David Beadle. John, David, thank you for being here today and being so brave to go back in time mm. and have one of your Thanksgiving dinner conversations Love uh, with me. Yeah, God bless you. <laughs> thank you so much, Amber. It's been awesome. Yeah, thanks so much, Amber. Really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. 
In two weeks, we've got a real treat, folks. Poet, priest, pipe smoker, musician, and motorcycle enthusiast Malcolm Geit joins me for a conversation about poetry and the miracles of Pentecost and many other things. There are some magical rabbit trails in this conversation, spontaneous combustions of poetry quoting, and he will even read the world premiere of a new poem for us on the show. Can't wait to share it with you. Until then, our producer is Leslie Thompson. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and it's been good to be with you. Peace. Peace.